Turn to Jonah chapter 4. You might be thinking to yourself, if you were here last week, we were in Psalm 137. How did we get to Jonah 4? Uh, that is a bit of a jump. Um, we're kind of in a mini-series. Um, I've called it a, a number of different things to myself. And it's kind of, it's God in the hard places, I think, is the bottom line of, of uh, kind of where I'm going with this. Um, trying to talk about... Um, kind of our response to the hard places in life and how God uses them in us. So, Obadiah, Jonah. There we go. So, uh, we were in Jonah not too long ago, a um, little over a year. And so, in some sense, um, this is different. Same text, same basic, I mean, it says the same thing, but I'm hitting a different application point uh, from that text. But. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I left my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head and to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left from their right, and also much cattle? And so Jonah ends there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Scriptures which you have given us by the Holy Spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son. We ask that you would make this profitable for us, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Make us mature, equipped for good works as we study the Scriptures this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I 
ponder Jonah 4, I can't help but thinking of uh, the rather silly movie, Anger Management. Some of you might be familiar with that uh, Adam Sandler film. It's interesting, it's ironic in many ways, because uh, Adam Sandler plays a man who doesn't get angry. And if you watch most of Adam Sandler's films, he's usually a man who's always angry. And so this was a, a big switch for him. It, it really showed his acting chops, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but he, he's a man who, ref, who almost can't get angry. And yet somehow, miraculously, or uh, some strange way, he finds himself on a plane being accused of being angry and being accused of harming the stewardess. And he ends up in court because he's been tased by the U.S. Marshal and arrested when he landed. And he's sentenced to anger management. And so he meets the anger management uh, counselor, Buddy Rydell, who's famous because he's written a book. So he must know what he's talking about. And so the humor of the film is uh, Buddy, and in one way giving him all kinds of silly platitudes to deal with his anger. Things like, the angry man closes his eyes and opens his mouth. That's very helpful uh, when you're dealing with anger. Um, another one of them was, uh, the Talmud says, and I don't know if this is actually true, but the Talmud says, everywhere a man looks, he sees something. The only thing that you can lose and still have is your temper. And so these are some of the tidbits that Buddy Rydell hands out to his, his, uh, his people who've come to him with their anger problems. But most of what Buddy does is, is try to provoke Dave to anger. Here we have a text that is filled with anger. Uh, we see, uh, well, if we had looked at the very end of chapter 3, we see of God's anger, which is resolved and removed, but we see primarily the anger of Jonah right here, and that two times God asks him, do you do well to be angry? Or as the CSB puts it, probably uh, more user-friendly, is it right for you to be angry? God is acknowledging the anger of Jonah, but he's questioning the rightness of the anger of Jonah. And I think that is an important thing for us to ponder this morning, precisely because his anger is in response to what he perceives anyway to be a hard circumstance. The repentance of Nineveh had been, had been met with God's relenting from his threat of judgment and destruction upon this great city. So that would seem to be a good thing, one would hope. But we see that God's mercy displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, that's a really interesting word, that word angry, because it has that idea of a burning, of the, the idea of a fire and we often don't recognize uh, the danger that our anger can produce because it is a burning fire. And therefore, it can burn down all kinds of things. It can burn down homes. It can burn down churches. Yeah. Hey. 
Sorry, we're behind here. We're getting, we're getting used to the technology. One, there we go. Um, <laughs> that fire happened while we were in upstate New York, or right before we got there, anyway. But the, the, the anger can burn down relationships and can burn down communities of faith as well as families that end up in divorce uh, and neighborhoods. So uh, the anger is a dangerous thing, but fire can also be a helpful thing. And so let's not merely think that anger is bad, but let's remember that it has its place, but it is a dangerous sort of thing that we play with. We see that Jonah here, when he's angry, prays. And that's probably one of the best responses you can have when you're angry. And in the midst of that prayer, he's, he's acknowledging the character of God as he prays, but you kind of wonder if he's not happy about the character of God as he prays. As he notes, this is the reason he ran away in the first place. He knew the character of God. He knew how this was likely to end, and he didn't want that to happen. He wanted destruction to come upon the great city of Nineveh. Tim Keller, in his recent book, The Prodigal Prophet, notes that uh, the prodigal prophet of chapter 1 has been replaced here by the elder brother, alluding to the parable of the two brothers in Luke 15, as he sits outside the city of Nineveh, hoping that it would burn. His own thirst or fire for revenge has crashed upon the rocks of God's grace and mercy and steadfast love. And when God asks this question to Jonah the first time, Jonah does not answer. He, he does not answer about the rightness of his wrath. He doesn't answer about the goodness of his anger. He just kind of storms off to that high place to watch. But here we see something amazing. We see that God appoints a plant. Plant grows. Jonah's happy. Not just happy, he's exceedingly glad because he has shade over his head. But God also appoints a worm to destroy said plant and to take away the shade. But that's not, at all, that's not all that happens. God also appoints, the author of Jonah wants us to know, the scorching wind that will then beat down, not just with the sun, but will, will try to make Jonah's life incredibly miserable. It's rather interesting because as I was reading Psalm 11 this week, I saw that a scorching wind shall be a portion of their cup. And he's speaking about the wicked. And here God is treating Jonah like he treats the wicked by sending the scorching east wind to make his life miserable. Jonah becomes angry. This time he's not praying. This time he's more muttering to himself, which is sort of the, the implication of, of how this is written. The question returns. Do you do well or are you right to be angry? See, God has worked to bring this question back because Jonah didn't answer it the first time. God's funny that way. 
Jonah has put, in this instance, the second outbreak of his wrath, his personal comfort above the safety of Nineveh with its 120,000 people and his livestock. And that's sort of what anger often does. It puts you at the center of the universe. We might think that this is um, a rare thing, but I don't think it is a rare thing. James 4 notes, what is the cause of all the fights and conflicts among you? And uh, in other words, why are you all so angry and devouring each other? And he talks about disordered desires wreaking havoc upon the churches and families that he was writing to. Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. This is not a, a rare thing. It's not an uncommon thing, but actually is a frequent problem. I'm reminded of uh, the first Avengers movie when, uh, I can't remember if it's David or Bruce Banner, they keep changing the name on me. Dr. Banner is there ready, and Captain America says, this might be a good time for you to get angry. And Dr. Banner looks over to Captain America and says, that's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. In other words, he could become Hulk at any moment. And we're always, I think, seemingly on the brink of breaking out in anger, if we're honest with ourselves. God here is pushing the buttons of Jonah. David Powelson notes, when a little thing pushes your buttons, it says something big about the buttons inside of you. We have big buttons. God was not just orchestrating the circumstances of Jonah's life, but if we're honest about the the, the entirety of Scripture, we see that God orchestrates our circumstances just as much in order to reveal our disordered lives, or rather our disordered loves that produce the anger that we experience. That's actually what's happening in the movie Anger Management uh, Buddy is specifically trying to find and push those buttons. And so he moves in with Dave. And it's not enough to move in with Dave. He wants to really get into his personal space. He's trying to, to try and find that weak spot where he finally he's going to break. So he gets into bed with Dave and so forth and so on. He keeps intruding himself into the, 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 the places that Dave doesn't want him to be. He thinks that Buddy's going to stay at the house in the morning when, you know, when he goes to work. No, no, Buddy's going to work with him. God is at work in our circumstances to try and bring up the anger that's already there so that we can begin to deal with the anger that's already there. And so your kids, if you have them, your parents if you still have them, your co-workers, etc., are in part gifts of God to reveal to you the depths of sin, not within their hearts, but within your heart. That doesn't sound like great news, does it? <laughs> but it is. 
It's kind of interesting. I got four kids and they all push different buttons. They all push buttons, but they all push different buttons. So each of them is part of God's gift to me to deal with me. And don't worry, kids, I'm God's gift to you (laughs) to help you deal what's wrong with you. Don't worry, it works both ways. But, But really, we don't want to focus on that part of it. We want to focus on what, what is God doing to deal with us? Okay. Whether it's through children or parents or circumstances, um, to reveal the depths of the sin, of our sin within us. And so the first point that really arises from the text is that God works to uncover our idols through our anger. That's the signpost. Uh, anger often means beep, beep, idol here. Hello. Somebody's got an idol here. But that kind of produces, for me at least, another kind of question. When is it right for you to be angry? This question um, assumes that it is right to be angry at times. Here, Jonah, in his first prayer, um, reveals some orthodoxy. Okay, when, when he, he's praying and he talks about who God is, and he says, you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, what he's doing is just repeating what Moses, what God declared to Moses on Mount Sinai back in Exodus 34. It's almost verbatim. It's something that we see repeated a number of times throughout the Psalms as well as the prophets, but there are two places right here in Jonah 4 and in Joel 2 where this other phrase is added, relenting from disaster. In Joel, that was seen as a good thing, but here for Jonah, I think he doesn't, he's not so excited about it. That's what's making him angry. But there's that phrase, God is slow to anger. Literally, it seems to have this idea of being long of nose, which doesn't really make sense. It's an idiom that seems to not translate over well into uh, 21st century America. But it has that concept of being long-fused. It's connected with how anger often turns our noses red. Not that we notice that. We just see other people's anger, not our own. See, Tim Keller talks about this a little bit in his sermon, the healing of anger, in that the, the goal is not no anger, the goal is not blow anger, or blowing up kind of anger, but the goal is slow anger, because that's who God is. God is one who's not quick-tempered, He's not always ready to explode like the Incredible Hulk. But he does get angry. Jesus expressed anger. We saw it last week in the temple when he uh, drove out the money changers. Uh, we see it in other instances like in uh, Mark 3 with the syn- when he's in the synagogue, and we'll get back to that a little bit later. We also recognize that his wrath is prophesied in the book of Revelation. So God gets angry. Therefore, it's not always wrong to be angry. Because if it was wrong to be angry, God wouldn't get angry. 
So it's possible for it to be okay to be angry. In fact, because we're made in the image of God, we are intended to be slow to anger just like God is. We see this in Proverbs 15. A hot man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Now, again, it's not he who knows no anger, but he who is slow to anger. So that's a wise man is slow to anger. He's not one like Dave who's avoiding anger even while his foot kind of goes like this because he's angry but not willing to admit it at all. He's stuffing his anger. Okay? Similarly, we see in James chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so the goal of a mature Christian is not to avoid anger, but to be one who is characterized by slowness to anger. God, in other words, never intended you or me to never be angry. In fact, I'll go as so far as to say to never be angry would be a sin. Why would I say that? Because I believe that anger is connected to love. Right? Anger for God is His judgment on that which harms what He loves. Whether it's righteousness, whether it's His people. And so there's that idea of judgment because you love something. If you never get angry, it means you don't love anything or anybody. You should be angry when the people you love get hurt for no good reason because someone else is acting in an evil fashion that should anger you. If not, then your loves are disordered. Okay? So our anger is supposed to be, or is, it is our judgment, and it is connected to what we love, but the question is, are we loving the right thing? Or is this a reflection of our disordered love? In other words, the path of sanctification is not about managing your anger, but about reordering your loves so they reflect the loves of God. We see here from Jonah by the fact that he, he, he almost word-for-word word quotes what God said to, to Moses. We see that orthodoxy, while necessary, is actually insufficient. He believes the right thing about God, but he's not happy about it. And that drives his heterodoxy, or heteropraxy, rather, his deviant behavior in all of this. We need a renewal of our hearts and minds, which brings us to the little chart that you have in your um, notes. How do we change? Or how does Christ change us is really more the, the idea. And it's going to be multifaceted, as we can see from this diagram that I stole shamelessly from the Internet. Okay? 
we change in part because foundationally God changes us. Now, what's not written there is the reality of our union with Jesus Christ. We are changed immediately by God because we are united to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so change happens directly in that particular way. Okay? But that's not the only way God changes us. He also uses various means. For instance, wise people change you, it says. Being um, you know, one of the, the things that Proverbs warns, warns you about is about being friends with the hot-tempered man, being with, friends with the guy who is not slow to anger but is always angry. Well, the flip side of that is be with people who are in control of their anger so that you can learn how to be in control of your anger. Okay, so God will bring slow to anger people, hopefully, into your life so that he can change you to become someone who is slow to anger. If we look a little higher and we see the reality of the word of God, and so passages like what we, we read from James 4 as well as James 1 coming into play in the, in the uh, renewal of our minds so that we are transformed, so that we're not conformed to this world, that is one of the ways that God changes us. But again, as I mentioned already, but here we have it, Suffering and struggle change us. The use of our circumstances, the heat and the thorns of life to produce change within us. God uses all of these things in order to change you and me so that we go from wherever we are, whether it's someone who refuses to get angry or someone who's always angry, so that we can become a person who is slow to become angry. And it's angry about the right things not the wrong things. Why? Because anger is so dangerous. We see that one given to anger causes much transgression in Proverbs 29. And so, I'm inviting you to a dance, that dance that we've talked about so often, the gospel waltz. And then when we look at it in this term, this, this framework, we recognize that we should be confessing our unrighteous anger. When we realize that, that ang- our anger is really about our kingdom instead of God's kingdom, that's anger we should be confessing as unrighteous. But that also, that unrighteous anger brings the judgment of God. So we're also called to receive, step two is to receive God's grace and power in the Lord Jesus Christ because of his death on the cross bearing the wrath of God that is due to our unrighteous anger. And so we confess, we receive, and then we walk in the power of our union with Christ to become slower to anger. We don't arrive there in a, in a week. We don't arrive there in a decade. It's often very slow movement in this process to become slower to anger. Boy, I wish it would speed up. I'm sure my kids wish it would speed up. My wife wishes it would speed up. But this is how God works in us because he's also working in them. Okay? And so God works to make your anger like his. And that's good news because he also does that through the good news. 
Well, this leads me to another kind of question. What will slow anger look like? Okay. It certainly doesn't look like Jonah as he stews on the hill above the city. And it may or may not look like Jesus in the temple. We see in Mark 3, interesting exchange. Uh, Jesus sees a man, this is in, in the synagogue, and Jesus sees a man whose hand is withered, and he asks the question whether or not he should, be, he should heal this man, whether it's good to heal this man on the, on the Sabbath day, and they didn't say anything. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. So Jesus doesn't explode upon these people. He, he looks at them with anger, but he's motivated. Even though he's grieved at the hardness of their heart and their unwillingness to help this man, he actually helps this man. His anger is not simply about vengeance, but there's a redemptive quality to his anger, seen in the restoration of this man's hand. As we, uh, as our community group studied last week, we were uh, we were looking at Ephesians four for quite a bit, and part of that starts off with "Be angry and do not sin." Okay. Now, there's some debate over that statement, be angry, okay? Um, some think it's more concessive, like, if you're angry, if you, if you happen to get angry, do not sin, but I think there are times when we should be angry. But no matter what, when we are angry, we should not sin. Be aware of the fact that you're angry, but also be aware of how you sin in your anger. Because later in this passage, it mentions a number of ways. The bitterness, the wrath, the clamor, the slander that are produced when we judge somebody with our anger. There are these things that are going on, and Paul says those are the things we need to put away because they're not a part of righteous anger. They're a part of unrighteous anger. We need to recognize, we need to remember that those things do not accomplish God's righteous purposes as we see in James 1. They don't please Him. So you can, you can be angry for the right reason and still sin grievously because of how you deal with it. How you express it, how it manifests itself. Remember the iceberg, not the Hindenburg, the iceberg. We saw the iceberg last week, and I want to bring that same thing up again, that um, there's more going on, in, going on inside of you than you realize. Okay. And that means that sometimes you're not just bringing this event to the table when you're angry, but sometimes you're really over-angry because of what's been going on all day. How perhaps you've been stuffing your anger all day and now this is the straw that breaks the camel's back and you just unleash fury upon this poor unwitting soul who doesn't know how hard your day was. Okay. 
But not only that, we also don't know what goes on beneath the surface of the other person. We don't recognize the battles, the struggles that they've been experiencing, the ways that they've been sinned against, and what they're bringing to the table in that moment. And maybe we should have some compassion upon them as a result of that, instead of breaking out in wrath against them. There's more going on in you, and there's more that's going on in them than you will ever realize. There in Ephesians 4, we see something else. Uh, that, that Paul wants them to remember that God in Christ forgave you. He wants them to remember, I believe, in the midst of their anger, uh, that they are daily recipients of Jesus' grace and mercy. Okay? They, they have received grace because Jesus bore the wrath they deserved for their wrath. that Jesus comes and offers us mercy and grace so that our anger now also becomes characterized by mercy and grace. In other words, we're motivated not to be uh, to bring a retribution upon the other person, but we're motivated to instead bring restoration, reconciliation with the other person. Which is exactly what Jesus did there in the synagogue. He healed the man who with the withered hand. Not everyone was open to what Jesus offered, so to speak. And so Jesus uh, didn't destroy the Pharisees that were in the room, but that would come a different day, in a different way. And so, that I think is the basis for why Paul can then say, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Instead of the wrath, instead of the clamor, instead of the slander, he's saying kindness, tenderness of heart, forgiving. In other words, the, the, the way I'm, I kind of put this together in my head is that if we go back to the idea of um, anger as fire, the gospel is retardant. So, got another one, Matt. Okay? That should make Mr. Boyer happy. No, does not make him. I'm making you angry? Yes? <laughs> Catalyst is something that, that speeds up or creates, of course, a chemical reaction. A retardant is something that slows down the chemical reaction, which is really my point here. They're trying to retard the progress of the flames, and the gospel is the only thing that ultimately can slow down the flames of your anger. That's it. That is the spiritual God-intended retardant for your anger so that you can begin to love, to be tender-hearted, to forgive. 
And so the Gospel slows our anger down so that we're not setting fires, we're not causing wrecks, we're not burning everything down. That we're able to live in a measure of peace and harmony with one another. Now, anger should motivate us to deal with the sins that are at the center of the conflict. It's not about avoiding that, but it's, it's about not destroying the person. Tim Keller puts it this way. He, he connects it as, in terms of parenting. Um, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. right? And when children do foolish things, parents get angry. We want to destroy the folly, not the child. Okay, The children may not think that. <laughs> and that, that might be because sometimes we're not very good at it. We're still figuring this thing out. You want, but you, you want to remember that the sin is the issue, not the person that's the issue. Yeah, they committed it, but really what you're going after is the sin. That's what you want destroyed. That requires laser technology, so to speak, for all you Raytheon guys, good targeting. It does not require a nuclear bomb, which will obliterate not just the sin, but the person. Okay. And so the goal of this is really the reconciliation of all the parties with God and with one another. What we really see here is that slow anger is an attempt to love, to seek the best for the other person. Slow anger is not simply the release of pent-up anger or the fire that burns within so that I feel better. Because that's important to me. So the third part of this is that God works to mix our anger with compassion. Well, that movie, Anger Management, is flawed in many ways and and how it looks at what anger does and what it's supposed to do. We don't want to simply manage it with uh, nice platitudes and catchphrases like Guzfraba. Our anger requires a Savior. A Savior to deliver us from God's righteous judgment because we're too stinking angry. And when we have that Savior, we can begin to resist ungodly anger and we can begin to pursue godly anger. And in order to do that, we need to seek that greater awareness of God, that greater awareness of self, and that greater awareness of the other person that uh, some of us have been talking about in community group. So that we can then love the right things and work for the good of those that we love, including our enemies. Because Jesus loved us and gave Himself for us when we were His enemies. And so, God works so that we do right, we do well when we're angry. But apart from Jesus, you're not going to do well when you're angry. Let's pray. Father, difficult subject. And there's far more that could be said. And I probably said some of it bad. Lee. But I do pray for your mercy upon us.
as your people. That, that we wouldn't pretend that anger doesn't exist or that we're not angry, but also that we wouldn't go crazy with our anger and just let it loose all over the place because like the flames, we can't control it. Father, teach us to be people who are slow to anger. And I fear saying that, or asking that, because I know that that often means you will create circumstances where we want to be angry. For that's the only way we learn. Have mercy on us in the midst of that. We thank you that you are slow to anger. And that provoked because of our great sin, you did not pour it upon us, but you poured it upon your Son. Because you loved us, and he willingly accepted that because he loved us. So thank you for such a great Savior for angry sinners like us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.